button. Did I press it that time? Yes. You know you yes, pressed I, it. Yes, I pressed it that time. You know time. you pressed the button. Hi, guys, and welcome to the first edition of Sports Legends, hosted by the Sports Guys Podcast Network. I am Nate Williamson. Jake Shavink here. And uh, this podcast is basically like a, I don't even know, it's like a sports historical podcast. Just something interesting I thought we would try. Uh, um, weave a story for you. We have a great story for you today. Going to weave it better than any basket that's ever been woven. 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 Okay. That is English. All right. Solid. Uh, this will be a podcast basically highlighting famous or uh, maybe not so famous sports figures uh, and just their stories and interesting stories. Uh, it's not all going to be focusing on their sports, but just people who have done a lot of things like that. And usually they're going to be important in sports because otherwise that would just not make much sense. Um, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So we hope All you guys right. like it. Uh, I hope you'll suffer through this. I don't know how long this is going to be the first one. If it's, it's too long, we'll cut it into two episodes. Or could always do that. Ish. Two. We could see. It shouldn't be longer than two. I wouldn't think, especially Again, not for this. This one. is the trial run. We'll see how it goes. This is a kind of work on it from there, and, and you know, trim it. You know, think about future episodes, whatever they may be. As Nate sips his tea just a little bit, and there seems to be my mouth copious like, amounts of sugar in that, like yogurt. Uh, that's that doesn't make any sense. Okay, <laughs> okay, all right. So Nate, uh, let's get right into it. Who are we talking about today? Today we are talking about none other than Curtis Gerald Redden, someone who no one probably knows who that is. Uh, I didn't know until Nate told me about him. So that's <laughs> that's an indication right there of how this is going to be. Not an incredibly well-known sports figure. Uh, but uh, a very interesting story, and a story that's very close to me. And uh, we'll get into why it's close to me and why I've grown up hearing about Curtis Redden for so long. Um, Curtis Redden was born on February 8th, 1881, in a town uh, very special to me, which also slightly explains why I chose this guy as our first subject, my hometown of Danville, Illinois. For those of you that don't know anything about Danville, let's say uh, it's a relatively small town compared to most big cities. It's a... I think it peaked at like 30,000 or something like that. So it's not small. It's pretty decent size, but it's in the middle of nothing. So it's kind of a city on its own. Um, it's a pretty historical town where we care a lot about the people that come from it. Um, it's a big, like a medium-sized town with a small town feel is the best way I can explain it. Yeah. Um, Curtis Redden is one of those guys I heard up hearing stories about. Uh, he's featured in our county museum and all that kind of stuff. So we'll just jump right into him. Um, like I said, he was born on February 8th, 1881 to William and Sarah Redden. There's not really a ton of information on him when he was a kid, uh, but all accounts actually point that he was living in Rossville, Illinois by the turn of the century in 1900, which is a town like right outside of Danville, only about maybe like 20 minutes tops. Uh, yeah, born in Danville, three siblings, just an average family, and it, Rossville is a small town. That's a very small town. Um, so basically, the first thing we kind of know about Kurt Redden was that he enlisted in the National Guard in 1898 and served with 149th Field Artillery in the 42nd Division. He served in Puerto Rico with Battery A out of his hometown of Danville and was moved to the Mexican border as captain of the Danville Battery once again later on in the Mexican-American War, or the Spanish-American War. I forget which one it's called. It's I've heard it both ways. Wow, that was <laughs> uh, iconic. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, when the division was in Puerto Rico, they didn't really encounter very much. I don't think there's ever really been much of a war in Puerto Rico. I don't think so. I could be wrong. 
Could not be off right. the top of my head. I, I again. I'm not really sure. I'd have to look. Middle school and high school U.S. history. Yeah. Doesn't always cover that, so. Yeah, Puerto Rico is not exactly a hot spot of social activity for most Americans. Yeah. It's a pretty place, though, from what I oh, heard. Oh yes. Pretty, That's pretty. I, yeah. Uh, so basically, Redden was just recalled as being a good leader and just fair and just and whatever he had to deal with. There's not a ton on that. Uh, there's a lot more about him after he returned home. Uh, so basically, he uh, did well in his post and received an honorable discharge once the battery returned to Danville. Um, records show they got back November 25th, 1898. So I gotta, I gotta tell you guys, hold tight with me here. I promise this story does have a lot to do with sports. I know this is kind of non-sporty at the time, starting off with military, just being from a town that's important to me. I promise it's an interesting story and not just important to me. Okay, so we're definitely going to drop right into where Curtis Redden's sporting career began and how he became known as one of the best Michigan football players of all time and how he became enshrined in the Illinois Colonnades at Memorial Stadium. So Yeah, like you I heard said, that right. If, if you need to play that back again... What he said was correct. Michigan. Michigan. But he's in the Illinois Colonnade at Memorial Stadium. I'm pretty confident he is the only player not from Illinois to be instilled in those colonnades. I I believe that. For those of you that didn't know, Memorial Stadium got its name because it was donated to the memory of World War I veterans. That's correct, right? Yeah. So, and up where you see the colonnades, the famous picture of the circular kind of things up there. I call them colonnades. I don't know if that's actually what it's called. I've but heard of that. They're close. That's what I've heard them called. And uh, there's names on those colonnades that were donated in the memory of uh, either fallen or active World War One soldiers at the time. So we'll get right into it. Um, like I said, the first place this story takes us is to the University of Michigan. After Redden came back to Illinois after serving in Puerto Rico, uh, he received the chance to study law up at the University of Michigan. That's right. The young kid from one of Lincoln's favorite Illinois cities and the home of House Speaker Joseph, Uncle Joe Cannon, can you tell I'm a little proud, was headed to Michigan, of all places, to study law. So this leads us straight to his days at Michigan. Kurt Redden was a defensive end during his tenure with the Michigan Wolverines. He enrolled at the University of Michigan, where he became one of the stars and captains of famous coach Fielding Yost, who I previously hadn't heard of before looking this up, but apparently he's a very big deal, especially to Michigan football. He's yes. basically like the Zupke to Michigan football. That, yeah. And they ended up actually playing that. each other, but we'll get to that. He's important. Zupke's important, too. We are going to get there. Yes, we are going to get there. So, Coach Fielding, Fielding Yost had, which is just such an interesting last name. I love it, but it's odd. Yeah. He was known for his point-a-minute teams of 01, 02, and 03. That, that's 1901, of course. Yeah. Um, it's a little ways back. These teams were known so much for their scoring ability, and you'll see why with some of the scores we're going to go over. Yeah, these teams interesting ones wiped the floor cow. with people. They wiped the floor with people. So basically, these teams arguably were some of the best early college football teams of the 20th century, and maybe even the whole of the 20th century. Yeah, it, I mean, it's obviously very hard to distinguish eras, but, I mean, when we get to what we're about to get to with this team, then you'll kind of see why it's considered that. They were very dominant in their times, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, really, if you guys want to look into Fielding Yost, there's a ton of stuff about him. Really interesting. I think there's a couple books about it. I didn't get the chance to get to, but I definitely could recommend 
even Wikipedia has a ton of information on him if you trust Wikipedia, which I do. So we're just going to go with that. All right. (laughs) Here we go. So at the time, the 1901 football team from Michigan outscored its opponents by a large amount by any standards, especially today's standards. So here's the stat on this. The team compiled a record of 11-0. This is Redden's freshman year. And outscored its opponents by a combined score of 550 points to zero. Other teams didn't score. (laughs) They didn't score even a point against this Wolverines team. This defense was headed up by End, Curtis Redden, and several other uh, players that apparently went on to be pretty well-renowned for their defensive capability. And most of them went on to be coaches because professional football wasn't as much of a thing at that point from what I've been told. Right. And uh, so a lot of them ended up as coaches. Redden himself will end up as a coach. We'll get to that little foreshadowing. I'll probably do that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so Redden was a freshman standout on this team, and I think the, probably the most interesting fact about this was that the team won the first Rose Bowl that year. This yeah, year started that's... the New Year's tradition, Yeah, which yeah. is really cool. And, <laughs> wow, that was really lame. <laughs> that's really cool. That's super cool. <laughs> interesting. Kitties, it's very interesting. <laughs> but... Okay, so over the course of Redden's time at Michigan, in his sophomore, junior, and senior years, they were 33-0, and zero, and they tied once, which we'll get to, and outscored opponents by a total of 1,764 points to 18. Redden was a unanimous first-team All-Western selection in his last year at school and was designated by three large newspapers at the time, the Chicago Record-Herald, the Chicago Daily News, and the Inner Ocean, which is one I had never heard of, as being one of... Only five players upon whom the Western football critics have been able to unanimously agree upon. Redden was also the designated captain of the 1903 All-Western team, and uh, it was recounted that Redden's cool head in a game, his speed and his strong playing mark him up as the most legitimate selection for captain among all other captains. Redden's speed up the field on punts, his ability to stiff-arm every interferer without slackening up that speed, and his open-field tackling mark him as the best end for the pure type of end work the West has seen in years. Offensively, his skill lies in assisting his tackle in boxing an opponent and assisting the runner after he has passed the line. So there's not a lot of mention of Curtis playing offense because he was such a defensive player, but I can only assume by that... That he was on the offensive line, maybe at times. That's what it looks like to me. And at this point, I'm pretty sure most linemen could also be targets to be thrown to or run the ball, which is just very odd. But it 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 happens. Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a very different game. There's definitely in the stats. Then. There's tackles listed as having touchdowns, like offensive tackles listed oh, as having touchdowns, I'm sure. which is just so interesting. I'm but sure. So, we don't really know much about, like, the physical specifics about, well, pronunciation, specifics about Redden and what exactly, like, height he was, but somewhere around 180 pounds, but must have been a lot of muscle at the time, because he was often hailed as being a big dude. So, I'm going to assume he was at least 6'2", maybe close to 6'3". I don't know, that's a guess. There's pictures, the pictures don't really do much because they're team pictures, and the people are kneeling, so I mean, it's not—it's kind of yeah. difficult to see. Right. But if anybody could uh, give me some information on that, p- please feel free. That'd be cool. Um. Okay, so we'll just get back into the the. Uh, we're probably gonna get straight to the 1903 season. There's not a ton about the 1902 season, but we're gonna, for sake of time, kind of glance over some things. Uh, 
feel free to ask me any other questions or feel free to look them up yourself. Either way, um, so Redden was a team captain his last year. And uh, we have a record of the pro- most promising new players on the 1903 squad, including a bunch of people from Illinois. Uh, the most notable probably being this guy named John Garrels, who was a speedster from Detroit, who went on to win the silver medal in the 110-meter hurdles at the 1908 Summer Olympics. With only eight veterans returning from the team, Curtis Redden wrote that no season in the history of Michigan football has opened with a gloomier outlook than that of 1903. The Michigan alumnus opined that the repetition of the extraordinary scores of 1902 was too much to expect, but expressed hope that the 1903 team would be able to cope honorably with its most dreaded rivals in Chicago and Minnesota. Of all the schools I would think of uh, Michigan having rivalry with, Chicago University is not one, but they were a really big football school in the early 1900s. Illinois had a lot of great rivalry games with them as well. And I remember Zupke coaching against them and hearing some of the stats about that. But, like we said with the stats earlier, the season started and the team's play was far more than what was expected. Um, We'll focus basically on Redden's game and his importance uh, just for the purpose of time. There's so much information on this season because it was so important to this Michigan football program. Um, but there's uh, there's just a lot out there. So we'll just talk a little bit about the season. I'll probably go through a couple games specifically, but nothing too crazy. Um, let's just say this. They didn't play their first full-length game because of how bad they beat their opponents, the mercy rule, and the time would run out until their fifth game of the season when they played Indiana. And even then, well, we'll get to that. Though the game ultimately ended with Michigan blowing out Indiana, Redden was credited with, the prettiest play of the day by the Michigan alumnus. Here's their description of Redden's defensive touchdown. Want to read that quote for me? Oh, I can do that for you, yes. I am still here, guys. How about that? (laughs) Did you guys know that? Uh, So the quote here is, The prettiest run of the day was made by Captain Redden. It yielded the third touchdown. He secured the ball on a half-blocked punt and carried it over the line a distance of 65 yards. Pretty solid run back then, 65 yards on a half-blocked punt. Yeah, I don't know, know what, what that means. Really that. Did he get a, just a piece of it? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. I guess it wasn't a Steve Gleason blocked punt. <laughs> it was knocked backwards. No. Maybe yeah. he caught it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what that means. We'll just we're just gonna go with that quote. I don't even know if and the football gonna... field was the same length at this point. In all honesty, honestly, I yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, I have no I, idea. I mean, it has to be pretty similar. Yeah, in I length. would assume so. Um, but yeah. It, it probably it might have been the same. Um, I'm definitely far from a historian in any regards. Yeah, I I mean I know a decent amount, but not back to 1900. Yeah. So that's that's because it changed. It literally changed. If you look on the NFL's website about like the documents of this kind of stuff, it changed depending on where you were, who was playing. Like yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like certain teams played a 30 minute quarter and then a 25 minute quarter. Sometimes they played two 25 minute. Like, or halves, I guess, not quarter. Yeah. But, like, it's just very goofy, the way they did things. But that was just kind of how the times were. It wasn't professional football. Yeah. At least not the ones we know, right? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't the uniform league we have now. So throughout their first five games of the season, the Wolverines scored 302 points in just 196 minutes of play. Michigan played Minnesota just a few games after that Indiana game. In their eighth game of the season... The New York Times reported that this match was one of the most desperate football games seen in the West in years. 
and that there were nearly 30,000 spectators on site to see the game. That is a ton of people to come watch a college football game at this point. I know it doesn't sound like much compared to what we see now, but that... But certainly back then when you have 30,000 attending a game... A lot. I mean, to put that in perspective, the Chargers stadium they were using this year was only like 28,000. So that's just crazy. Like they filled more than than that stadium for a used. college football game. Yeah, in 1903. Um so there is a lot of history behind this game and well, I'm definitely going to go into it because it's actually really funny and it has some kind of uh impact on a certain thing that I'll talk about that goes on today to this day. Uh, So anybody that knows the Michigan-Minnesota history, well, probably already knows what I'm going to get into, but uh, otherwise we'll just drop into it. So um, basically, the game ended in a 6-6 tie, which is very controversial, so we'll get to that. The first time in the Yost era that Michigan didn't win their game, and one of the few times that they didn't win in this first couple years of the Yost football program. Uh, Minnesota's offense offense outgained Michigan 155-60, but the defense, led by Redden on the end, coming off quick, held fast, and the first end or the first half ended up scoreless. So basically, check this scat out here: the Michigan touchdown. Like I said earlier, tackles can score. The tackle came from right tackle, or the touchdown came from right tackle Joe Maddock. And the next drive, Minnesota went on to tie the game. This is where things get really, really weird. There was a touchdown, an extra point, just like you would see now. And with two whole minutes left on the clock, the Minnesota fans rushed the field, and the game had to be ended early because they couldn't clear the field in time to play before the sun went down. This is before really nighttime football games, basically. And so they literally ended the game with two minutes left on the clock at 6-6. Six to six. So a touchdown was five, then the extra point was one, like it is now. Uh, like we said, a lot of things have changed, obviously. Um, so here's how the Detroit Free Press described the scene. Time was not up by a few minutes, but the crowd surged onto the field and time was called, as it would have been impossible to have cleared the gridiron in time to resume play before daylight had faded entirely away. Which, I mean, again, if, if you have 30,000 people there, probably not all of them rush the field, but, you know, you, right. you have a great deal of them doing so, it's very hard to clear it, so... Especially with how big of a deal this was, apparently. Yeah, so... It's just kind of nuts to think about calling a game because of that. Think yeah. about how many teams would like put up two points against Duke in a basketball game and then rush the court. Oh yeah, it, we, won. Like, we won. We <laughs> scored. It's two to two. Let's call it now. Yeah, it, that is. You got to think there was some just, student section on the side that was like, "Hey, hey, hey! You know, you guys know how we could get away with a, a win against Yost Michigan you know, teams." Let's, let's rush the court. This is let's an interesting it. accent, an interesting uh, voice you have right now for that. This is my like nefarious it. person. Nefarious voice. person, okay. It'll come up again. I like it. All right, <laughs> it's coming again. Okay, excited. <laughs> excited. So, football at the time, like we said, it was far from perfect, and there was a lot of craziness reported around these games. Many papers at the time complained about a lack of fair calling in the game from officials. Granted, most of these newspapers were Michigan newspapers, but sure. still, they had probably had a pretty good reason to complain from what it sounds like. Um, so basically, these officials were appointed by Minnesota, which at the time, one could imagine that there would be some kind of um, compensation being passed around. Sure. I mean, it's, it's basically a volunteer job at this point, I'm sure. Yep. 
because they're not getting paid a lot of money, you wouldn't think. Maybe if there's 30,000 people coming to your game, you are, but anyway. Uh, so basically, um, the game's umpire, as it was called by the Michigan alumnus, Henry Clark, was selected as Minnesota, by Minnesota, and uh, he came under a ton of fire after this game, apparently. Uh, basically, I don't know if he's continued to officiate games, but uh, you gotta think from this point on, this guy's like public enemy number one in Michigan. Yep. So he's definitely probably never refing a Michigan game again. Yep. Think like not. Ted Valentine times 16,000. Yeah, that would, that would cause a lot of issues yeah. today. Yeah. If something like this happened. Especially if it got exposed. You know, under the table, I mean, you know. Yeah, oh, right. But you... We would hope that doesn't happen anyway. <laughs> you, would, you would think not, but you never know. Okay, so another world. interesting thing about this game, I know I, me and Jake were talking about this a little bit before we started, and uh, this is what I was alluding to with the history of Michigan-Minnesota football. Uh, the game gave way to a tradition Michigan and Minnesota fans will know pretty well, the Little Brown Jug which is the name of the trophy the two teams fight for still to this day, as far as I'm aware, whenever they play one another. Um, so basically, I think that's a really common thing. I mean, I know Illinois plays a ton of teams for different things, like the Turtle and uh, what else? Is Lincoln's there? Hat. Lincoln's Hat is a big one. Yeah, there's a lot of different little things like that. I know every yeah. school has their own yeah. little the, thing. The most, the most, I think, common one that people would associate with the Big Ten is Paul Bunyan's axe. Yeah. Which is yeah. Wisconsin and Minnesota. I think at least that's the one I think of first. Uh, there's a lot of them. The oak and bucket, all yeah. that good stuff. There's so many of them. I think now. my I think favorite. It's a great tradition. I'm pretty sure my favorite one is the turtle. With El- it's Illinois, Maryland, right? I think so. Because it was originally a real turtle. That's just fantastic. They just passed Here go. this Here's turtle a tur- Here's our turtle that we kept on the side. Hey, you got to know what we should do for this football game? Let's give the winner a turtle. Apparently the Big Ten now plays in Texas <laughs> and Louisiana. Okay. Right as in my backyard. Forward, as we go forward. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, but, again, it's, it's, there's a really nice story here, and I think Nate's going to kind of just go through the background of this little brown jug. <laughs> yeah, I'll get out of my twangified accent. Uh, Sounds like a good plan. Actually, uh, so basically, here's how the story went down. Upon the arrival of Michigan's team into Minneapolis, Coach Yost reportedly told then-student manager Thomas Roberts to go and purchase a water jug. I'm just assuming that at the time that was just kind of normal. Like, yeah. oh, go buy the team some water. Yeah. So, Roberts went and purchased a jug at a local convenience store, and when the Minnesota crowd rushed onto the field with two minutes left to play, let's just get that straight again, just so we don't gloss over that, because it's freaking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> the Wolverines left the jug behind on the bench, or this is how the story goes, which, I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. It'd be kind of crazy. I think I'd be trying to get off that field, too. Yeah. Well, I'm worried about a water jug, yeah. Yeah, like, I'm not going to worry about that. Right. So, the head of the Minnesota Athletics Department... English Athletics Department L.J. Cook then was given the jug by a custodian I do believe painted the jug brown and wrote on it Michigan jug captured by Oscar October 31st 1903 so uh, Oscar um, the custodian just grabbed this jug and said hey coach uh, would you like this jug yeah. As a trophy, and uh, for some reason he said yes. 
and then the legend of the little brown jug was born. So, uh, according to legend, Yost wrote a letter asking for the jug to be returned. That's just weird. It's just weird. It's a weird story. I don't know what kind of... I mean, the jug in pictures, it's small. It's like a little jug. Yeah, it's a baby jug. But I guess, I mean, if you paid for it, I'd be kind of trying to get it back, too. I guess, depending on how much you paid for said jug, yes. Yes. I don't know what the running stock price of jugs was at the time. No idea. Maybe, like, ten cents. I don't know. Yeah. I didn't do enough research into my jug facts. No idea. I should have. Anyhow. So Cook then responded to Yost, firing back, We have your little brown jug. If you want it, you'll have to win it. So Yost came back eventually with his team to play Minnesota. I don't think... I think this was... The next meeting was the first meeting between the two after this. In 1909, retook the jug, and thus the rivalry trophy was established. I really hope this is still going on today. I would have to look. I think it is. Oh, it definitely is. It should There's be no if doubt. it's not. The little brown jug is still a thing. So if by chance 100%. the ADs of uh, Michigan or Minnesota are listening to this, you should do it if it's not already being done. Just a heads it's up. It's definitely being done. Like 99.9% sure. The, the little brown jug is still a thing. I hope so. So, um... Basically, we're going to go to another game here. That was just an interesting story I thought I would throw in there. It's just kind of fun. Um, So, another key game for Curtis Redden, getting kind of back to him. I know we kind of strayed away from him, but individual football stats, uh, they're a little bit harder to come by from 1901, 1903. So, uh, basically, just the performance. Just know that he was leading these games for these teams. He was a very good defender and apparently played a little bit of offense at the same time, which I don't really doubt that because yeah. it makes sense you wouldn't have that many players on the team yeah. but um, especially if they're all like law students <laughs> like this guy was yeah, studying I mean, law while all this was going on so yeah, it's just crazy so... but um, in the Michigan game against Ohio State this the same year Redden was hailed as being the one saving element in an otherwise poor Michigan defense when Michigan outscored Ohio State 36-0 to zero. I don't think that sounds like a poor defense to me, really. I don't even... It's whatever. I I don't know what, what that means at all. The one saving element in the defense when you win by 36. Yeah, I'm not You're gonna really You're going to have to help sure. me out with that one. I don't know if he forced five turnovers in the red zone <laughs> Every or time they got to the one-yard line, he stole the ball from I them. I guess. Maybe that's what <laughs> happened. I don't know. I firmly don't understand that quote. But I don't either. I thought it was pretty However, funny. So, uh, the team season ended undefeated, and with a national championship, winning the first ever Rose Bowl, like we said, Redden started 11 out of the team's 12 games. We don't really know why he didn't start the one other game. He might have been hurt, might have had a big ball exam the next day or something, I don't know. But basically, um, so that leads us to our next little part here. With the success of these Michigan football teams, these past like three or four years, 1900 to 1904 or so, their players were in really high demand as coaches. So first place Redden went was to coach the football program at Kentucky University, which I think is really interesting that at that time, you just walk off the field from being a player and onto the job of being a head coach at yeah. what is now a pretty, I mean, reputable D1 university. I mean, I know they're not the football school, but... Yeah, but still, I mean, coach Kentucky. Yeah, it's pretty He's neat. not 24, 25 years old. Yeah. So in right. 1906... Redden signed to play professional baseball with the Indianapolis Indians, as he had also been 
one of the few players in the Michigan at the time in Michigan school history, probably still now. I feel like this isn't a very common thing. No, it's definitely not common anymore. To captain both the football and the baseball team at the university, which is just a really interesting thing. He was just doing all this stuff while he was becoming a lawyer. And apparently he was a good lawyer, but we'll get to that. So two years later, Redden hung up his cleats, both pairs, for good, or so he thought, and opened a law practice in his hometown of Danville, Illinois, also becoming in local politics. That being said, like I kind of referenced, Redden couldn't quite escape his love for the game. He returned to football to take time out of his practice to join Coach Yost's staff to try and whip the Michigan football program back into shape in the October of 1908, and then he returned again in 1911. And again in 1912. So basically, this guy like could not leave the game to save his life. Like, just came back year after year to help his coach. So they must have been really close. And it just shows what kind of trust Coach Yost had in Redden and what kind of player he must have been, as well as what kind of brain he must have been, because of the ability to coach and to lead so well. Which he probably picked up a lot of that from his time in the military, the first sure. stint. Yeah. Uh. I've heard a lot of the times those kind of characteristics carry over pretty well in terms of leadership. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, So in the meantime, Red married Loyette Irene Panky, I guess was her last name, but she was, we're just going to go with Loyette Irene Redden because Panky is just not a great last name. Anyway, no offense to anyone with the last name of Panky. Uh, They were married in 1910 and went on to have three children. Uh, Redden also went on in 1915 to become the head coach at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, which I've only heard of in passing. It's still around. I honestly can say I haven't heard of it. But, but I don't I'm know anything about you're, it. You're closer to the area. You probably yeah. know. I don't know anything about it, but I have heard of it. Um, from 1915 to 1917, he was a football coach, PE director, or line coach for the football team, excuse me, an assistant PE director, which for college is a, probably a completely different thing at the time. I'm sure it was more of like an athletic director than anything. And, uh, and he was also the head baseball coach at the time. So um, that is actually the end, basically, of Redden's football playing career. And uh, now we'll move on to part three of the Redden story. Um, so this is kind of where Redden really cemented his legacy. Sure, he is a great football player, but um, and probably a good coach from everything that points that direction. But this is why he's kind of so revered in terms of Vermilion County and as well as like being in Memorial Stadium. Um, so basically, when the United States entered World War One, Redden enlisted in the United States Army, once again returning to the colors to fight for his country. He served as a major and then as a lieutenant colonel in the 40, 149th Field Infantry, which was then a part of the 42nd Division or the Rainbow Division in France. The Rainbow Division was one of the first divisions of the American Expeditionary Forces, which is kind of like the pre-war force that was sent. Like, not pre-war, but because Americans got into the war really late in World War yeah, I. Yeah, which... Which is uh, the whole debatable subject on its own, but it ended up well. But um, So they were like one of the first American units to be sent over before the main force. And I mean, that's not an uncommon practice, I wouldn't say. Uh, but basically, they got sent... Um, they started out on the western front of Belgium and uh, basically were in France in uh, November 1917. Uh, this unit was also one of the commanders was General John J. Pershing, who would uh, raise to be a general of quite re- some regard in his time, both in World War One and in World War Two. And upon arrival, they began training on the tactics of the dominant military strategy at the time, 
which, looking back on it, was not the greatest decision on anyone's part. Nope. Uh, they started learning the tactics of trench warfare, which is just probably the most brutal form of warfare I think I've ever heard of. Uh, it's mostly either hand-to-hand or it's just very grueling in general. Not a lot of sleep. Um, just That war was just horrific, and it does get forgotten a lot, but that's a whole other story. Um, so, as an officer, Redden took up quite a pretty big role of working with the Allies and working between his men and the Allies. Um, the 149th was just a smaller part of the 42nd, which was huge. The 42nd is a huge division. We'll get on to more, like, the stats of that in a little bit. But the, uh, 149th, uh, artillery was mainly from, uh, like, Redden's area here, central Illinois, mixed in with some other people, and, uh, just some thrown-in volunteers and everything, uh, so basically, they weren't really expecting quite what they got ended up getting into, but uh, in the following year since they got there, the division took part in operations in the Marne, the Battle of St. Mihiel, and the Moose-Argonne Offensive. In total, the 42nd, and therefore Redden, saw 264 days of combat, and even was placed under French control for a period of time for a certain reason. I, there wasn't really a lot of specifics on that, but I think at the time, a lot of the Allied troops kind of just ran together, which makes sense. And uh, this uh, unit also changed leaders quite a few times, but um, a lot of the officers stayed the same, like Redden, and Redden was there. We'll get into that. So, uh, in April 1918, a newspaper published a letter from Redden to a friend back home that described Illinois Artillery Unit's experiences. The letter said, And so it went, from day to day, but off times the night were very bad. At night, when the infantry launched its raids, or the enemy his, or the infantry fire became nervous and called for help, the guns stamped like stallions and snorted their breasts of fire. The blackness of the night became a series of dots and dashes, until the world resembled a vast radio station, spelling hell, hell, and hell again. To this must be added the shriek of shells, the whistle of fragments, the automatic hammer effect of the machine gun, the rattle of the rifle fire, the rocket and star shells out over no man's land, all combined to make the night weird, hideous, fascinating, sublime. So that's an incredibly, like, tragic description of war. But in the long run, you can tell just how intelligent Redden was, because that is such a well-written piece, and it does kind of describe, to a standby or a non-active military person, what that must have felt like at the time, because it's just... World War One was full of so much confusion and so much of that, like, I don't want to say hysteria, but, like, you didn't always know what was going on exactly because it was such a stagnant war. Like, very little, I don't remember the exact stat, but there was so little ground actually gained and lost in World War One that it's just absurd, and it's due to the trench warfare strategy. Um, so, yeah, it's a really pretty... Le- or beautifully, I would even say, written statement, but it's also really sad because you know what the background behind it is. And the fact that there's a law student over there doing that shows just how the average person is in these wars and is affected by these yeah. wars. Um, so basically, we'll just go on uh, into the next kind of notable thing that happened to Redden. Uh, this whole thing, I'm sure, was notable at the time, and I'm sure there's a lot more than what I could find on it, but... Uh, the databases don't have a ton of stuff. Uh, November of 1918 was when Redden was promoted to lieutenant colonel, the highest uh, rank that he would receive. Redden survived the rest of the war and all of the battles that they fight in, seeing some of the toughest fighting of any of the American units in World War One. 
He saw more days of battle than all other units. Redden's leadership ability and other traits were often the tale of letters back home from his men. The total casualties the division saw were 12,625 wounded in action and 2,058 killed in action. Douglas MacArthur, who would also rise to great fame in World War II, was one of the commanders of the division at one point, which I found really interesting because I've always liked learning about MacArthur and all the stuff that he did. So it's just odd to see these wars, though World War I and World War II can seem like completely different worlds because of the technological differences, they were really close in proximity. I know it's such a stupid statement because it's so obvious, but sometimes they seem like worlds apart. Um, that being said, though Redden did survive um, all of the battles that he was in, he never made it home. So uh, this is kind of where he uh, his story kind of ends but doesn't end at the same time because of the things that came from yeah. what he saw and uh, the people that he impacted, which really makes his story such a great part. And I think that's important to note. And maybe it's not his sports that really made me want to do him as our first subject, but the people that he impacted and show yeah. uh, athletes are way more than just athletes, which I think is a common misconception. But that's another story. <laughs> um, after surviving through the hell of war and back, he died of pneumonia in January of 1999 at a hospital in Koblenz, Germany. After being in charge of the artillery unit for over a year, Redden was buried on a slope near the point where the Rhine and Moselle rivers meet. Newspapers described his funeral as follows. With an escort of more than 600 enlisted men besides the officers of the 149th and 67th Artillery Brigade, of which the regiment was a part, the cortege passed through Koblenz with Redden's horse, sergeant taking the place of honor immediately behind the gun carriage bearing the flag-draped casket. In line with the custom of military funerals, the dead officer's boots were in the stirrups with the toes pointed to the rear. At the grave, three volleys were fired by an infantry squad, and a bugler sounded the plaintive notes of taps. That's a weird tradition. Taps, Officers' yeah. boots in the stirrups, pointing backwards. I did not know that was a thing. Well, to learn something new every yeah, day. Yeah, I guess. I, guess I so. mean, when I read that for the first time, I was like, wait, really? Like, I don't I Hey, you never know. Um, so yeah, uh, Redden has since been reburied in Danville, where the, also our town courthouse square, like the little, like, area where our courthouse is and all our judicial buildings for the county is, it's named in memory of him, which is something that was a really big deal at the time, there was a big ceremony for it and everything, I talked to some people that were there in my history of being involved with museums in town, and apparently that was a huge thing, uh, which really just shows how much this guy really impacted the town that he's yeah, from. Yeah, for sure. And, uh... So, if that wasn't enough, here's probably my favorite part of this story. And it's another twist, but also, I think it's, like, appropriate. I really do. I think... And, of course, it's where Illinois comes in. Yeah, I... I, This is such a big thing from two rival... I mean, I guess they weren't huge rivals at the time, but two really good universities to come together and do this, which I think... We do see that sometimes just in smaller amounts, the schools coming together and doing great things, like, with all the charitable work that the athletic programs do and everything... Like, I mean, we see that a lot, but and thankfully, we don't really have the opportunity to do this because there's not a world war going on. Yeah. Thankfully, please don't change that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, here's the twist. In 1921, and uh, Illinois fans, you'll probably be familiar with this, uh, one of the columns in Memorial Stadium at the University of Illinois, just 40 minutes from his hometown, was named and inscribed after Red. Here's the account of how this happened, just to wrap up the story. Um, 
The Michigan alumnus probably put it best from what I could find. This was an incredibly useful, it's a yearbook, actually, I'm pretty sure. Which, yearbooks at the time are, you know, they're kind of like memory books. Actually, yeah. Which are really cool. And um, so this is uh, all from the Michigan alumnus, is most of these quotes. If I miss citing them on something, that's where it came from, most likely. So I'll just, uh, I'll read the first little part here, and then we can talk about it. Just before the beginning of the Michigan-Illinois football game in Urbana, Saturday, October 29th, Coach Yost met Coach Zupke. Yes, that Coach Zupke that's in the NFL Hall of Fame, credited for being one of the greatest football lines of all time, was partially responsible for this at the time, which is just awesome. These two great heralded great coaches. coaches coming yeah. together. I mean, what even compa- what could you compare this to like right now? Like, I don't even know. It would kind of, it would more so be like... Oh boy, this it's hard in, in today's NFL, but it would kind of be like if Lombardi and Belichick were kind of in the same yeah, game, I think. I could definitely it, it would, see it would, that. It, at least two recognizable names. I definitely had Belichick in mind for it. Yeah. Because he's so be big. Too, yeah. But like two really big names. These really two big. great football minds coming together to honor this guy. Okay, so we'll get back to that quote. Sorry, I just had to take a sidetrack from that. It's important. Yes. They came together in the center of the field and presented uh, Coach Zupke with a subscription from the friends of Colonel Curtis Redden, who knew him at Michigan. The sum was sufficient enough to pay half of the expensive for the memorial column to be erected in memory of Colonel Redden in the new Illinois Stadium. I don't remember when Memorial Stadium opened, in all honesty. Mm, 18? Yeah. Or No, wait. Well, no, it's no, like, it's like... It's late 20s? Is it? I don't know. I, I'll because, look really quick while I talk. I mean, clearly it was there yeah. already in 21. Let me At look. least from what I can tell. As, yeah, I'm not really sure like when, but it doesn't really matter in the long run of things. So basically, the people he knew from Michigan gave him enough to all donate and pitch in to buy half of this colonnade for them. Um, so then the alumnus goes on to say, Coach Yost received the following telegram later. Each member of the 149th Field Artillery is with you at the presentation of the memorial column in memory, if not in person, in tribute to our soldier, Curtis G. Redden, Illinois Chapter, Rainbow Division Veterans, J.J. O'Mara, President. The alumnus states that this column will stand for all time to perpetuate the memory of Colonel Redden and as a bond of union between these two great universities. Curtis Redden was an American war veteran, Michigan football icon, and small-town hero. He lived his life bravely, interestingly, and uh, greatly from 1881 to 1919. It's a really great story of, of Redden, and I got to credit Nate here, folks, if you're listening, for getting all this information and, and, and kind of compiling it together in a really nice way. And, and so... But yeah, it's really cool to see this guy become have such an impact in so many different places, and eventually to have his name in Memorial Stadium, and that's kind of how that sort of connects to us in a way, because um, obviously you know an all Michigan story just you know yeah. almost wouldn't suffice to cut it here. Yeah. But you know it it just it seems pretty fitting that 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 kind of ends that way, and then. Just to see two great universities, like you said, come together and, and make it happen in, in a stadium that was really for these yeah. people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that gets forgotten a lot. I definitely 
forget about it. I mean, yeah. just the reason the stadium was made, and the reason it's been so heralded for so long is because of the reason it was built and how it was dedicated, and I love yeah. that. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, I'm really glad that Redden's story is told through that all the time. I know the colonnades up there, I don't know if you can even get up there just to the public. Um, I will say U of I Tours, uh, when you come to consider going to school here, I believe they kind of give you a little bit of a, oh, if you're excited about this, about football, you know, you get to go in and you, you kind of get to see that. That would be really cool. Um, I know I've been in the press box up there, but... It's like in a weird area. It's not yeah, like you, up top. It's, but you can't it's not, just kind of go in. It's not. Yeah. It's not kind of how that's set up. But it's it's super cool like, to see the colonnades. Yeah. And kind of. And I don't know, know all the other there. guys that it's donated to and uh, memory of, but uh, I know there's some pretty reputable names up there. Oh yeah. And uh, it means a lot to people. I mean, not so much now. There's uh, not any World War One veterans still alive, as far as. That sounds really ignorant, but I don't think so. That they would literally be. It would be very 118, I think, which is point. older than the oldest person. I think so, maybe. So yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm fairly confident there's not there's a, de- a declining amount of World War II veterans. Yep. But there are people that knew these guys and the, yeah, the grandchildren, sure. children even I would say, yeah. I'm sure, right. of these people. And I know it means a lot. The Redden family still goes on today. Um, him and his wife had three kids, and uh, she outlived him by a lot. And even his mom outlived him, which is really sad to hear. I think his dad outlived him too, but that's just the nature of the story. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I don't want to end that on a sad note. I think that's yeah. a happy. It's a happy story overall. Yeah. Because it shows absolutely. a lot of good things about people, and uh, I am really happy I chose to do this one as our first yeah, it's, story it's, because it it's just it's all it's got it all. It does have it Weird all. sports, funny hillbilly accents, nefarious accents, uh, sacrifice, teamwork, stuff. Stuff. Yeah, it's definitely got wow. some stuff. Wow. I ran out of words. You finished that well with the stuff at the end. Wouldn't I just be a great coach? I would just throw random words throw out random there. Random words. I'm just going to jump into words. <laughs> Cohesiveness. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, guys. Well, that was, uh, in a nutshell, 46 minutes or so of our first edition of this. This is a really, like, kind of thrown-together format. I literally, I think I didn't tell Jake I was doing this until yesterday. So, and I uh, also didn't get the paper until today. So it was kind true. of interesting, and it was, but I think the at least running through this once will kind of be able to find a way to... Make it work better, but again, you know, we're trying stuff out now, and it, it's it's in the stages of we're gonna figure stuff out that we we're gonna do that you guys want us to do, and and, and we'll keep going with this if this is a personal favorite of of maybe even just a few of you. So, absolutely. So we will we will definitely keep it going, and, and I'm sure Nate's got plans already for what's gonna be next. Oh yeah. And so this this will be an interesting um, podcast to keep going through. <laughs> For sure, and it, Nate puts a crap ton of crap ton of work into this one, so make sure you you commend him for that if you do listen to it, because he killed it on this one. There was uh, I appreciate that. Uh, there are a lot of people I want to cover. Um, there's definitely I started off with a guy writing this, and then I stumbled on Redden and was thinking about him when I was talking to a friend about the museum in Vermilion County, 
and uh, I ended up putting off the other guy so I could read this book that's written about him because I feel like it would help a lot just for content-wise so that yeah. I know what I'm talking about. Redden, there's not really a book out there, so I just kind of had to compile right, so a bunch of like... stuff. But uh, So, yeah, there's a lot of guys I have ideas about, and if you guys listening and uh, have any ideas about anybody I should do... Um, just feel free to share them. Uh, the email will be something like uh, sportslegendspodcast at gmail.com or something like that. I'll attach it when we post this. Yeah. And uh, you can check us out on Twitter. You can DM us on Twitter uh, at sportsguysblog, at that Nate W guy. And then yeah. I mean, Jake's Twitter. Yeah. We'll which just. I don't remember. <laughs> we'll just. Uh, I really need to change it so it's, so it's easier to read. And we'll, 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 we'll do that. But. Yeah, find find Nate for sure, um, and you know if you got suggestions, send them, send it. But send it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a really good first one, and I'm, I'm excited to see where Nate takes this. This is really his like his. Uh, yeah, this is something idea. I've always is, been interested in. This is his idea. In. This is his um, vision going forward. I, I'm excited to see where it goes because I think there's a lot of different things you can do for this. Yeah, so. for sure. A lot of different ways we can go. Uh, I think it'll be kind of just interesting. I mean, we don't even have to focus on one people, or one one people. Uh, one people. One people. We are one people. <laughs> we don't have to focus on one person. On we could do planet. certain events like sports and the mafia, in certain eras in history. Hey, There's a lot of really, really juicy stuff. There really are no limits. I can do honest. whatever we want to do, and yeah. that's beautiful. Yep. It is. So we're going to so. just uh, wrap up here. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to uh, my sister Elizabeth for kind of encouraging me to go through with this and giving me a couple ideas on uh, something that people would like to listen to that's not just us blabbering about Illinois, even though that's important and you should go listen to it because it's really important. It's really good, I promise. It's good. It's very good. It's good. And uh, we'll be back with that soon, too. Um, Absolutely. Shortly. Uh, lots to talk about. Shortly, yeah. But uh, plenty. But. So, uh... Thanks, guys, for listening, and uh, follow us on Twitter. Send us some emails. Uh, peace out. Peace, guys. Bye.